0: Okay, major milestone for Connor McDavid. He secured his 500th career point last night. And for more on this, we're joined now by Nick Kiprios. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Kipper, good afternoon. How are you, Jeff? I'm well, thanks. It uh, took Connor only 369 games, Nick, to get 500 points. Which, uh, funny enough, ironically enough, the same amount as somebody else we may have heard of.
1: <laughs> man, oh man, these guys are. Uh... Just incredible athletes, Connor McDavid, uh, a generational player from the moment uh, we first started to get to know him uh, in the greater Toronto area playing for the Marlies. But we knew he would be special and he would put himself in a position to be amongst some of the greatest hockey players in the history of the game. And being one of the early guys uh, to to hit 500 points uh, solidifies that he is going to be great. How great remains to be seen in terms of perhaps championships, but as far as individual uh, uh, skill already will be talked about as one of the best ever.
0: Yeah. He ties a Sidney Crosby at exactly 369 games to get to 500 points. What is it, Nick, though, that makes McDavid... I mean, everybody points to his speed, and surely that's part of it, but what do you think is is it about Connor McDavid that really sets him apart?
1: Well, it's the separation uh, speed that he has that we've never seen before, and I include the likes of Gretzky and Lemieux, and I never saw Bobby Orr in his heyday, but I think that's the closest comparison to what a player can do to push the envelope or or raise the bar. Maybe that's the best term. And Bobby Orr did that with his skating uh, when he started to really surface uh, in the late uh, late 60s, early 70s. And Connor's done that in um, 2019, basically, when he – 2017 when he when he broke in so that's what we're seeing for the first time and when you factor in that we've got already some extraordinary athletes in our game um, it just tells you how much further his skating is uh, compared to anyone else's so that's first and foremost the second thing is is being able to do it at a high speed the stick handling the shooting uh, the cutbacks the edge work right? That's, it's one thing to be a fast guy from A to B in a straight line, but we are talking about a guy that can change gears in a heartbeat, change angles uh, inside, outside, all of it comes into play. He's just, he's just a treat to watch. And, you know, when you think about, you know, Connor now being in a, in in a top 10 for fastest players at 500 points and and he tied Sidney Crosby. I I think, uh, I think that number should have been higher, a lot higher. If he had better support, uh, 500 points could have come 50 games ago. But when you watch what he was able to do with the lack of support around him in Edmonton, you know, that number should have been a lot th- uh, faster to get to, Jeff.
0: Yeah, well, listen, uh, the top player, the one to get there the quickest, no surprise, is 99. At uh, This is just astonishing. 234 games it took Gretzky to get to 500 points. You played during part of the Gretzky era. Let me ask you about that because a lot of people say, oh, listen, the goalies weren't as good, the pads were uh, smaller, the uh, defensive schemes weren't as sophisticated, but... Uh, I mean, that really does kind of take something away from what Wayne really, truly did achieve back then. I mean, honestly, 234 games, Nick, to get 500 points. Yeah.
1: No, no, one's, no one's rolling their eyes at that. Uh, the accomplishment speaks for itself. And we could always sit back from different eras or different generations and say, yeah, but this was different. And Okay, that, that's, a, that's a conversation that would keep going in a circle. But what can't be denied uh, in any era is the, the amount of talent that you have around you. And Wayne had that from the get-go. It's great. And as much as Wayne was the face of the Edmonton Oilers, they had, they had multiple generational players. Paul Coffey, Wayne Gretzky in those first 500 points and the amount of games that he had, had Paul Coffey. Paul Coffey the greatest Uh, defenseman in history in terms of sheer point production, goals in a season. I mean, he he was right up there with Bobby Orr. So when you have that guy and you can come constantly year after year early in your career with different looks and different layers, there's a chance to add a lot more to your your offense. And that's what Wayne was able to do. Uh, Crosby when he first came in you know, it didn't have, obviously, what Wayne had around him, but at least he had a defenseman at the time, Sergey Gonchar, who's one of the better scoring defensemen in the league. He was, he was a 60, 70-point defenseman. People don't remember, but Sergey Gonchar also helps Sidney Crosby accumulate a lot of points. Who has Connor McDavid had in Edmonton in the last few years on the blue line to help him accumulate his 500 points? Right now, I think Darnell Nurse might be the closest guy to an offensive defenseman, and he has not been able to light it up early in his career, but he's having some luck. But other than that, Crosby uh, has been a man on an island doing it all by himself in Edmonton. Even Leon Dreisaitl didn't get off to a terrific start in his career and, and needed to work his way up to his status. And again, Crosby at least had Malkin out of the gate scoring 80 points, 90 points. So, you look around, it's just not a, a one guy that can accumulate 500 points by himself. You've got to have a lot of talent around you, Jeff. Crosby could be argued, or um, David, I'm sorry, could be argued that he had the least amount of talent around him. Yeah. For his 500 points might be even more impressive than Sidney Crosby's.
0: That's a good point and an interesting way of uh, looking at it, uh, Nick. Having said that, the, the knock on Edmonton, as you well know every hockey fan knows, the past couple of seasons is that they underachieve, that they have not gotten where they need to be uh, as a team, despite how great Connor McDavid has played. And we talk about Connor in the same breath as a Gretzky or a Crosby. They have rings. They have cups. They have championships. Does that got to come and come soon for Connor McDavid, do you think?
1: just mere success I think uh, in the playoffs again and they they had a snippet of it uh, in his first year um, you know while they missed the playoffs in that shortened 45 uh, game season that I think he had but the next one I think they went to the second round and it looked like it was promising and then it just fell off the face of the earth for him I, I think he's he's got to show that at least this the, the team's trending in the right direction he's a very frustrated guy and has been for a while he's he doesn't, you can tell a lot from his body language, much like Sidney Crosby. Uh, they don't say much, but you can just see when they're frustrated. And I think Cros, uh, McDavid's been there with the Edmonton Oilers in the last few years. So he needs to see some growth and, and, and growth in a hurry here uh, to move forward. But ultimately, these guys can accumulate all the points that they want. The, the true measure, and Ovechkin found this out is that you've got to win championship. For people to look at you as truly one of the greats, you've got to be able to bring the prize home.
0: Absolutely. Uh, just finally, uh, Nick, how have you been enjoying the season uh, so far? We haven't talked in a little bit, and in particular this uh, Canadian division. There's been some uh, pretty exciting hockey, and uh, Leafers uh, overall have been doing pretty good.
1: Well, the Leafs are where we thought they would be, and that would be an explosive team that could have great offense.
0: Matthews has
1: taken his game to a, a complete other level. Uh, he's gotten stronger. He's gotten smarter uh, in both ends of the ice. And as Joe Thornton eloquently put it in his post-game comments last night, uh, he has a chance to be uh, a complete player. So in saying that, uh, the Leafs look a little bit uh, Boys to at least be the the leaders out of the gate out of the canadian division but i got to tell you outside of maybe montreal's hot start um i'm just dis- i've been disappointed with the canadian division uh the inconsistencies out of edmonton winnipeg and calgary vancouver we knew we knew vancouver would would suffer because of the loss of their goaltender markstrom and tan of defensively uh but it it it's been a frustrating uh, start for Vancouver Canuck fans, especially with their success in the bubble last year or last season. And I, I'm hoping that these guys, you know, all these teams, even Ottawa, we thought Ottawa would be a little bit more competitive. We saw, we saw it last night, but they certainly have not brought that uh, all, all season long. So th- these teams, they, they got to show a lot more outside of Toronto and Montreal for, for the Canadian division, I think to uh, at least carry some momentum in this shortened season. And I hope that's the case. They, they should be better than they are the majority of the teams in Canada.
0: All right. But the Leafs do have some momentum and I don't want to jinx things, but I was looking at the calendar and Monday is the uh, one year anniversary of uh, David Ayers. Fortunately, We are not playing Carolina because uh, they obviously are in the uh, American or the U S division.
1: Yeah. You know, Jeff, you talk about uh, the comeback by Ottawa uh, a couple of games ago and and people compare those type of moments to the meltdown against the Boston Bruins in the playoffs uh, and, and to losing to a Zamboni driver. So, you know, for the Leafs, um, it's, it, those has to be learning lessons. They have to understand uh, that maybe the market here is is really impatient for a championship, and this may be their best opportunity. We don't know what's going to happen with Fred, uh, Frederick Anderson's contract. We don't know what's going to happen with Morgan Riley long-term. There's no money to give these guys big raises. Do they want to go somewhere else? This may be the Leafs' best chance. So uh, they got to understand that... Uh, the watchers in this city—it's the here and now. They—they got to win now.
0: Absolutely, Kipper. Uh, thanks as always. Good catching up. Uh, stay well. All right, Jeff. Thanks for the time. All right, Nick Kiprios with us. Where we got some big news from down under is Facebook users in Australia no longer able to share news content. And for more on this, here's our tech expert Adam Oldfield. He joins us now on Global News Radio. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good
2: afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, thanks for being here, as always. We'll get to the uh, how in just a second, but first, give us some background. Why? Why are Facebook users in Australia no longer able to share uh, news stories?
2: Well, uh, what's happened is there's a big controversy in, in in Australia, particularly when it comes to news sources being shared, but not being compensated. Uh, and so the government of Australia is putting pretty much about to pass a bill that's going to force uh, mainstreams like Google and Facebook to be uh, sharing media or compensating these media outlets uh, for all of the news coverage, that they're gaining all the advertising revenue from it. So uh, at first, it was Google was going to be shutting off the search engines. Then Facebook was also in that merit in regards to being uh, accountable for profiting off of journalistic news that's being shared. And as such, they ended up more or less saying, if you guys don't start contributing and paying these news sources, we're going to have to create our own law. And as such, Google's trying to work and play nice. Facebook apparently decided to be the school bully and more or less say, well, uh, we don't like your rules that don't exist yet. So we're going to shut it off. And what that meant was all Australia currently, I don't know if they're lost and confused, wondering what's real, what's happening. But uh, you can no longer uh, see any news posts. You can't share any news posts. And that includes access to news outside of the country, inclusive of the news in the country. So right now, Facebook has pretty much flexed its muscle and said, you know, uh, these are the rules that we're going to play. If you want to pass this bill, then this is what you're going to be experiencing. I think this is a kiss of death for Facebook. I think they're they're really going down the wrong path here, Jeff. This is not a smart move.
0: Because whether we like it or not, this is a major news source these days, right? Facebook and people sharing news uh, stories on their timelines and with uh, friends. And when you're no longer able to do that, uh, the thought might be that uh, Facebook users uh, might say, uh, you know what, forget it, I'll go somewhere else where I can do that.
2: Absolutely. And I think it also brings up a context of what misinformation is going to be posted, because remember, all the fake and and false ads or propaganda messaging uh, is still being able to be circulated within Facebook. So imagine taking all of the real journalistic postings and now put in only the fake ones. It's like a a cesspool of lies and a bunch of people conspiracy uh, theories are going to be shared amongst the Australian Facebook news. Now, whether this is rumor or not, Jeff, which is interesting is that uh, I believe Facebook is, and again, here's the conspiracy starting, is that China has some sort of a role with respects to why Facebook shut it off quicker. So whether that's true or not again is is it a conspiracy or otherwise but that an already the rumors are spreading through facebook so let's go back to what facebook is claiming and why they're doing that as well is the fact that they claim facebook claims that the news is gaining value because of the community and the volume of people within facebook uh, they're sharing the articles. Uh, communities are are commenting. They're they're helping these media sources in regards to bringing awareness to them. So I just, you know, to go back to the fact that why Facebook is being a little more proactive to shutting it off is saying we aren't really gaining any valuable advertising from this. We're actually gaining more awareness for your media sources. But right now, the only thing in Facebook land in Australia is that you can pretty much watch episodes of me eating Doritos and (laughs) (laughs)
0: Entertaining onto itself. But having said that, maybe not as informative as, say, something from the BBC or Global News. So, having said that, is Facebook basically, are they arguing that, uh, you know, what their users are doing, it's like you bought one newspaper, you read it and basically left it on the uh, staff room table and somebody else uh, picked it up and uh, they're not paying for that uh, newspaper over again?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. What they're claiming is that what Facebook, what Facebook is claiming is more or less, yeah, g- commenting that they're taking the newspaper that was there and, and distributing it in the content of what it is being uh, written amongst its volumes of users. So uh, that's a great analogy that you indicated. The old newspaper laying there and all I'm doing is I'm going to make photocopies of your newspaper and I'm going to give it to everybody to, to take a look at. Now, the the advertiser or the newspaper is saying how, are we able to make money when our articles and journalistic research that we're paying uh, our journalists to write and research aren't being properly compensated? And this has been one of the biggest things. Social media has driven a lot of journalistic operations out of business. Um, And and for that matter, Google uh, was one of those obviously uh, contemplators of that. Now, Google stepped up. They've already agreed. They've already started to financially support these media sources. What's really, really important and why Canada needs to be aware of this and why we need to be paying attention is that we follow a very similar uh, process as Australia and the bills are gonna be written very similar. It's already in front of the Senate discussions. How will Canada react and judge these bills that are being created? And how is the social media elements reacting? Uh, I think this is also a test. Uh, when I was watching this happen, Jeff, I kind of was thinking if I was in Facebook shoes, um, this is a little test to see how far they could push it. I think it's an opportunity for Facebook to go, let's shut it off, let's see what happens. Let's take a perspective because, Australia is big, but it's not enough to sink Facebook. So this is a good test market for them.
0: Because I was going to ask my final question here. We're uh, quickly running out of time. But could we see that happen then, do you think, here in Canada? Could this spread elsewhere that uh, Facebook uh, shuts, uh, shuts this down?
2: I would be willing to expect that this is going to happen in Canada within the next six to eight months. I believe that this, this is not something in years to come. This is going to roll out within a matter of a couple months. It's already been discussed. I know that po- politics is already in the process of reviewing how can we save Canadian journalistic operations, and this is going to be something that they're going to look at as a, as a staple. And I think it's going to move quickly. As I mentioned, Google already made an agreement uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the government of Australia. And I'm willing to bet they're already in discussions with uh, with Canada to go over that. I know they don't, Google particularly, doesn't feel they want to lose market share, especially when Microsoft is just salivating to get inside that country, and ours for that matter, if Google was to leave.
0: All right. Goes without saying, we will be watching this as it progresses with interest. Adam Oldfield, Adam, thanks as always. Thanks, Jeff. Keep warm. Talk to you soon. All right. You too. Okay, big news made during our show yesterday, the city of Toronto saying that they want to keep our city under lockdown for the time being, all because of the dangers of the COVID variants. Here's TO's top doc, Dr. Eileen Davila.
3: As a public health physician,
4: I've never been as concerned about the threat of COVID-19 to your health as I am now. Not at any other point in the pandemic.
0: All right, joining us now is Deanne Brisebois, CEO of the Retail Council of Canada, and Deanne joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Deanne, good afternoon. Hello. Appreciate you uh, joining us uh, once again. Uh, You just heard there the health officials want it. We've heard from the provincial health minister saying that the provincial government is considering it. What does business say? Should Toronto and Peel, should they delay reopening, do you think?
3: Mm, Well, certainly not, is the consensus within our community and that represents independent retail owners, small chains and large chains. I think we need to remember that Toronto and Peel represent 30% of Ontario's population. They have been in lockdown, if we go to February 22nd, pretty much for three months. They've been told uh, to expect to reopen. And we've been hearing for the last two days, in fact, we've been stormed with phone calls and emails about our retailers reopening their stores, preparing them for the 22nd, recalling employees, uh, refreshing inventory, and now they may be faced with a position of laying off those employees again. And I think the biggest concern here, and we've seen it in uh, in prior months, is that they're locking down Toronto and Peel, that uh, the population is going to drive and go to other regions of the province to shop, which we don't think is a good idea. Keeping the stores open in our businesses open in Toronto and Peel at very strict 25% capacity, we believe makes a lot more sense.
0: All right, understand the want, understand the need to get reopened again, but what about these uh, variants? Does business, small business, not share those same concerns that the health officials are saying regarding just uh, how transmissible they are?
3: Oh, absolutely. Number one, and it's important, and thank you for asking, the number one concern is health and safety. But for us to sit back and believe that in the next two weeks, that we're going to resolve the issue with variant. I think we all agree that that's an issue that's going to be with us for a while. So we should be looking at ways to contain. So we've been proposing much more rapid testing. Our small, mid and large retailers have said, we're there with you. Let's contain it. Let's make sure we isolate people with COVID regardless which variant it is. And in fact, there's a very Important Stanford study shows that it is more it is more effective if, in fact, we have a strict capacity openings and more testing and and ensuring that people are isolating when they are testing positive. So shutting down for two weeks may look good for those two weeks, but it doesn't resolve the issue. So we don't believe that that is the best way to make sure that we can keep everyone safe
0: yeah, does small business does uh, retail retailers do they feel as if they are adequately equipped when it comes to what is expected of them to reopen and to reopen safely? Has there been a good dialogue between uh, the government and the retail council of Canada and businesses?
3: Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, if you remember, it feels like it's years ago, but if we go back to the first wave and we look at what our retailers did and and including, Uh, Many of our independent merchants who have just one store, very few employees, they stepped up. They even went beyond the guidelines in order to make their environment safe for both customers and and employees. And the statistics showed that the cases were not uh, emanating from retail, which proved that the retailers were doing an exceptional job. I mean, it is in their best interest to be not only vigilant, but exceptionally good at putting the procedures in place. And it's been done and it continues to be done. So, you know, we're very proud of them and we believe they are prepared and they can work with Toronto and Peel to ensure that there's more testing, that there's more, more measures, to ensure that the people who are testing positive are not circulating within the population. But we don't think that a lockdown for two weeks is the solution.
0: All right. What would you say to those? And again, they're looking at March 9th as a possible reopening uh, date instead of next week. Uh, There are some people that say, listen, it's only a couple, three more uh, weeks. Can businesses can they hold on? Or do you think that's the difference for some businesses at the very least, whether or not they uh, survive moving forward?
3: Uh, We believe that extending it for an an extra two weeks, setting aside uh, some of the you know, the points that we were making about making sure that we're keeping an eye on health and safety. It, there is no question that extending another two weeks is the last nail in the coffin for many of our merchants, especially our independent or smaller merchants. You know, think about the fact that they've been closed for three months now. And in those three months, they've been closed during a shopping period that is that often represents close to 30% of their entire volume for the year. So they're already suffering because of the holiday season, and they're you know they're barely barely making it. There are less and less programs that are supporting them, and so this this is of great concern to us. We know, and we've talked to a lot of the small merchants in Toronto and Peel who've told us they're probably not going to survive uh, the the next two to three weeks.
0: All right, Deanne Brisebois with the Retail Council of Canada. Deanne, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for coming on.
3: Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
0: Well, we're less than a couple of hours away, or in space parlance. I think NASA would say we're T-110 minutes. I've never un- understood that. What's the T minus all about? Anyways, uh, we are actually less than two hours away from the so-called seven minutes of terror as NASA attempts to uh, land their latest rover on Mars. And joining us now for a bit of a preview is Doctor Sarah Masrui from Ryerson University, and she joins us here now on Global News Radio six forty Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon.
0: All right, how excited are you for just before 4 o'clock today?
4: Oh, my God, really, really excited. Slightly nervous, but more excited than nervous.
0: (laughs) And that's probably, I'm guessing, how all of mission control and NASA is feeling uh, this afternoon. Everybody, a doctor, keeps referring to this as the seven minutes of terror that's going to happen right around 4 o'clock. Can you tell us what exactly NASA is bracing for and just how tough is it to land this rover on the red planet?
4: It's a pretty tough thing to do. I mean, we sent this rover over six months ago. It's taken six months to get there, um, and now we're in the last critical couple of hours. Um, You know, everybody thinks we've been to Mars before, so it's just the thing that we do now, but forget that only 40 to 50% of all the Mars rovers have landed and operated successfully. Uh, So this is really exciting. The seven minutes of terror are going to be a little... Scary. we're not going to have direct communication, uh, but but it's going to it's going to land. It's going to start from the top of the atmosphere. Uh, it will have a massive parachute that will hopefully slow it down just enough. And to, once we get a little bit lower towards the surface, there will be a sky crane that's going to put the rover uh, near Jezero Crater. It's it's landing spot.
0: Okay, so like a fifty-fifty chance that this thing, uh, you know, lands successfully—that we pull it off—it's really just a flip of a coin.
4: No, so there's been years and uh, hundreds of people's times put into it to plan it very carefully. Um, The really good thing is that we've had many previous missions to Mars. We have a really good idea of what the surface of Mars looks like. So scientists have already mapped out the area where they want the rover to land, and we have landed previous rovers on the surface of Mars. This will be very similar to the Curiosity rover that we sent up about six, seven years ago. So we've done this before. Um, If all goes well, we should land successfully. It also has uh, a semi-automatic navigation system. So this is actually new. It's kind of like landing with its eyes open. So it will still look down to try and figure out the safest spot to land. So hopefully our chances will be much, much higher than a 50-50.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that, that's good because I would think just getting there is the bigger problem. I mean, six months of flying through space to get just get to Mars, I think, would be tough enough. But this is the actual tough part. This is seven minutes of terror.
4: It is one of the toughest parts. Yeah, you're right.
0: All right. Now, tell us a bit about this a rover, if you could, because uh, NASA is saying, uh, Perseverance here, this is their most high-tech rover to date.
4: It is pretty high-tech. It is going to test out a lot of technology that we haven't before. Uh, like I mentioned, it has the automated navigation system. It has a microphone on board for the first time, so we might actually be able to hear the landing Um, And it's got a lot of different instruments. It has a helicopter, so for the first time ever we're sending a helicopter to Mars and eventually flying it, uh, which will be pretty fantastic. But it has one instrument that I'm particularly um, interested and excited about, and it will be using resources on Mars to um, sort of change the atmosphere of Mars, which is mainly carbon dioxide, into oxygen so that... Humans could breathe it, which will be pretty cool to test out because if we are going to send humans and astronauts to Mars later on, we need to have something where we can sort of um, take take stuff that's already on Mars and change it into what we can use as humans for breathing, which is oxygen. Tell us a little. Tell us a little bit
0: more about this uh, helicopter. I mean, is this like a full-sized uh, helicopter with this rover? or Is it uh, more like a, a drone that uh, NASA is going to be able to fly around? And what sort of quality pictures and video are we expecting to get?
4: Yeah, it will be. It will be a um, smaller than a regular helicopter. So, Perseverance itself is the size of a car, and this helicopter is sort of sitting in its belly and it will eventually put it onto the surface. So it would be somewhere between a drone um, between a drone and, and an actual helicopter. Uh, the type of data we'll be able to see, the type of pictures we should be able to see. I wouldn't expect it to be anything um, as amazing as what we would see here on Earth, but we should still be able to get some decent pictures. We do have orbiters that are orbiting Mars and we, we get really high quality images from them. So that would be very interesting. We're most excited for and looking forward to is seeing it actually um, fly because Mars's atmosphere is 100 times thinner than here on Earth. So seeing how a helicopter will operate on Mars, how high it can fly would be what we're really looking for.
0: So if everything goes well, Doctor, we are expecting to get uh, the most complete data and the best view of Mars that uh, we've ever seen?
4: Local data, yes. It would be a rover that's going around in Jazeera Crater. Uh, It will be similar to what Curiosity is doing, but at a different location. Um, We are using the highest tech instruments on board. So from where where Perseverance will be roving, we will be able to get the best data. But there's something very significant about Perseverance um, and the location that it's landing in. It's landing in what we think is an ancient lake.
0: Um, this is the sorry has, the Jezero Crater, and uh, why is that so important? What exactly is the rover going to be looking for right there in that crater?
4: Yeah, it is Jezero Crater, which we think is an ancient lake, and about three and a half billion years ago, there was probably a river flowing water um, into this, into this um, lake, leaving behind some sediments and rocks. And what we know from Earth is that wherever there's water, there's the possibility of life. So what Perseverance is gonna look for is rocks that may contain signs of ancient microbial life. And it will be selecting these rocks, putting them aside so that a future mission can go and return these rocks back to the Earth for the first time ever.
0: Okay, so this is not something we're going to know inside the next half hour after it lands. Like by 4.30 this afternoon, I won't know whether or not uh, life was possible or ever has happened on Mars.
4: Definitely not. So By 4.30, we'll just know if Perseverance has landed safely, if it's saying hello to us, and if it will be able to search for those rocks and signs of microbial life.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. I know I'm impatient, but uh, I'm part of this uh, you know, new generation that uh, I want immediate gratification, and I want it now, as I'm sure all of NASA does, uh, too. So how long is it going to be, do you think, until we can determine uh, a lot of what we've just been talking about uh, regarding uh, Mars? Are we talking uh, years from now?
4: Uh, the nominal lifetime of this mission is about a year. That's, that's usually the case with most rovers, but they last five, ten years. Um, So what what scientists and engineers have planned for is to be able to gather that information within the next year. So hopefully we'll know something in the next year or so. All
0: right. And what is the best way for those that are really, really into this to track the rover's progress? I I understand that Perseverance uh, already has, of course, its own Twitter account.
4: (laughs) Of course, it has its own Twitter account and I think its own Instagram account. Um, it also has a website, uh, the NASA Perseverance Rover website, um, and over there they will post any up-to-date information. So as, as soon as there are new discoveries, cool images to see, anything from the helicopter, anything from any of the instruments, there should be pictures and articles and videos posted there. And for today's live stream, is live streaming it, and it should be on their website and YouTube as well.
0: All right, just a word of warning to everybody. Do not compare your Insta stories to Perseverance, because (laughs) Perseverance uh, photos are literally out of this world. Uh, Dr. Sarah Mazrui from Ryerson University, thanks so much for the time explaining the uh, mission. And, uh, listen, we've all got our fingers crossed. Enjoy the seven minutes of terror coming up just before 4 o'clock this afternoon.
4: Thanks.